0: Welcome to the My Rules Are Better Podcast. I'm Tom Barbalay and today, back by popular demand, a fan favorite Barney Dipper. <laughs> Hello. So, my understanding uh, you're coming with topics, which is the best kind of guest. Absolutely. So let's Blind get started. To you. Blind topics. Blind topics even better. Okay. Well,
1: the first thing is so it's Friday afternoon where I am mm-hmm. and I'm I'm just going to open an alcohol-free beer. Wonderful. Oh, okay, so Germany leads can...
0: the world in alcohol-free
1: beer. It does. It's got. I'm. I'm drinking Klaus which ah, actually has four different types of alcohol-free. I think that's that's the most expansive range I've mm. I've come across. So here we go. So you might hear this. If you can hear me opening it. Oh, I don't know if that a pleasant that can... sound. A okay. Pleasant sound. So mm. that's here's to you, Tom.
0: Thank you. And I have a lukewarm diet coke, as is my want of my podcasting room. So Mm. I will also, I'll I'll bang it against the mic. Fabulous.
1: So the first thing is, I'm coming on the podcast. I mean, it's great that it's by popular demand, fan favorite. I mean, I assume that's basically you and me. Yeah. That's our own popular fan favorite demand. Believe
0: me. Yeah, I track the numbers associated with this podcast, and I think it might just be you and me. (laughs) Listen to it on a regular basis. I'm somewhat embarrassed to say that as the podcast doesn't, do what it says on the wrapper. We may have lost every possible lister. So anyway, let's moving let's on from that.
1: Let's yeah, let's let's put the wrapper back on it. So the first thing is, I would like to publicly announce mm. that I am not. I have no intention of giving up on you or our friendship. Very good. So I just want that on the record because sometimes, sometimes I get the impression from you that you think. <laughs> I'm I'm scheming to ditch you, or not or, scheming, or
0: just say- through just through the natural nature of the way you. Uh, I some background which I might have acknowledged on a f- few prior podcasts. I have had a, a pretty rough and boring lot in um, long-standing uh, working <laughs> friendships, and yeah. um, based on a series of experiences, including about four hundred hours worth of audio, which has been expunged from the internet and. In certainly through my parental leave, let's just call it that. My yeah. view is that, that it's based on some actual stuff, um, yeah. rather than becoming a hermit, which is what my wife wants me to do, and just yes. stop interacting with everyone and concentrate on the, uh, you know, the spoils that I bring. Um, she means
1: she means wear a smock with no underwear and grow a massive beard.
0: Yeah, I work with people like that, so I, I take mm. my view is once you work with people like that. In fact, one of them's doing a cross-country tour to end up here at some stage. (laughs) Primarily based on his beard size alone. Quite ironically, before we left uh, California, my wife was driving past the Netflix car park and saw this gentleman with a huge beard and said, or thought to herself and then said to me later, I'm sure Tom works with that guy. Turns out to Mm -hmm. be the case. I did work with him. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. So yeah, the large beard option is just not acceptable, unfortunately. My view is that... um, no, I look. I genuinely enjoy our friendship. I think you yeah, bring yeah. Uh, you bring a collection of eccentrics who have their own interesting quirks and foibles. And my view is that as a, a similarly framed alpha nerd, we will maintain yes. our friendship with various um, exacerbated. Um, let me point out to you, ladies and gentlemen, that Barney delved into my mental health in his most recent email to me, which normally would be a immediate grounds for uh, <laughs> for losing the friendship, but. Uh, No, no, look, I I hold great hopes for our friendship, Barney, and I'm particularly fascinated by your professional life, which seems to touch on areas that I never knew you knew anything about before. And uh, just, just purely through, uh, purely through just watching your evolution, uh, I think our friendship will remain. uh, But obviously, you're going to constantly think that there's some feud between us, and I'm no, no, (laughs) no. <laughs> I, I'm just generally—I don't know. I mean, I—I I think through. I my, tell you what.
1: Yeah. I tell you what, Tom. Sometimes, sometimes I—I I even get the feeling that you're almost goading me into. Wouldn't like,
0: you be on this podcast if I didn't do that? Huh?
1: There you go. So so it's just to say, I, of course I kind of accept the bait, but that's not with a view to, um, you know, dropping you off at the service station late one night. And yeah.
0: you know, My wife's already got that one down, so you'll find it. You like, she'll do it for you. Um, anyway, look, all this aside, my hope was that we wouldn't even get into this
1: related... But that leads into the fact that the Adventures in Soothsaying episode, I hmm. really genuinely found moving mm. um where you talked about enjoying the alluvial plains meeting certainly um and of uh, meetings and that whole process and so 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 just generally i think friendship through gaming is a really interesting topic and i'm and i'm so massively grateful to you mm. in in terms of my evolution and podcasting mm-hmm. and all of those things and yes. that to me is is a really key thing, mm. you know. Those kinds of things, that as- that aspect of knowing people mm, uh, is is really important to me. And um, because because as well, you make this you make this comment in in that episode that um, that you should that maybe you should try and take my approach a little bit more. Mm, certainly, and yeah. I, and, I, and I thought what I thought was so great about that. So I mean, maybe you can describe how you interpret that approach again, very briefly. So but I'm, me, yeah. But I, what I wanted to say was that that I I just thought, wow, that's wonderful. He's he's really recognised something in my character.
0: Well, in um, your approach, yes. Yeah, yeah. And <laughs> my approach. So I guess my feeling is that we we've been friends for about three years now, Barney. And after our first year, we had a rather tortured podcast recording because you accidentally you wandered <laughs> into an area of extreme pain and, uh, yeah. you know, psychic injury. Um, yeah. And my view is that we are so completely different as people and approaches. I mean, you might not hear this on the podcast recording, ladies and gentlemen, or Barney in the future. Um, But but I I will say that uh, I am very – just through the way that I run my life, I'm very procedural and very organized and have a particular fashion which my daytime work exploits to the limit. Mm -hmm. And that means that if I start a project – we had some ongoing discussion. I I published a a podcast about the late Shock Chi. And Barney in response said, you're just as half assed as me basically – (laughs) And in in response to that, my thought was, well, he's not counting model rail radio, like he's not counting all the ways that we don't interact, but still go on in parallel. And, uh, you know, model rail radio is a keen example of this, because this is something that has to be procedural, it has to be done in a particular fashion. And it actually really is a burden, but it's a burden that I take because I have, Mm -hmm. you know, a lot of quite curious and interesting people that I've met through model rail radio. Um, mm-hmm. Who continue to correspond with me and in some cases allow me to organise aspects of their life. So mm-hmm. it's a very my view with regards to how to do things is based on the number of things that I do and also that um, you know it's a style that I have. But it does come into problems, particularly when I work with creatives. And <laughs> this has been this has been a twenty five thirty year evolution. I used to work with musicians quite a bit, and they just don't fit in at all with this. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you know they there are a wide variety of factors so i'm now re-engaging with creatives in order to make ranges of miniatures um which yeah. is also something which i have to kind of thank barney for because i i'm always cautious about commercializing hobbies mm-hmm. and yet through you through a very easy going and not necessarily american capitalist model you seem mm-hmm. to actually embrace this notion of of commercialising hobbies and in fact create a, a way of doing this where it's almost infectious. Um so I guess my <laughs> my view is that I'm not getting the right vaccinations currently, and this has kind of entered my life too. But it's also made me realize that the the light touch, slightly unauthoritarian approach that you take to this thing okay. actually means that although things aren't necessarily coming out in this a uh, time frame. They create these amazing spinoffs like the Alluvial Plains Monthly, which is just really an opportunity for a group of nerds to mm-hmm. get together and shoot the breeze on what-ifs, you know, mm-hmm. twenty to 40,000 years ago, which mm-hmm. actually I find a really interesting headspace to enter into once a month because mm-hmm. I, in the spare time, I work on simulations which are very much, well, the past... 80, 90 years at least. And the kind of counter examples and the, just the nature of kind of simulation philosophy is embodied in the alluvial planes monthly in such a way that I actually have stuff to offer. And when mm-hmm. I leave the meeting each month, I think to myself, that's pretty strange. I had something to offer there. Like, you know, the evolution of plants rapidly over time with mm-hmm. a lot of human involvement. And it gives me an mm-hmm. opportunity to talk and think about things that I rarely talk and think about, but still kind of reside within me. So this stylistic thing that you have of a relatively light touch, bringing folks together, no deadlines, no pressure of that nature, just an ability to know that I'm going to be talking with, you know, Mm -hmm. all of you at least once a month. Mm -hmm. And this Mm -hmm. evolution will probably move towards a a rule system. And I do a lot of historical reading as well about how, Mm -hmm. you know, early TSR, early games Workshop. And that was one of the things that I found fascinating meeting Livingston Mm -hmm. and Jackson Mm -hmm. was that they embodied a lot of your approach as well. So Mm I kind of thought to myself, this is a potentially a retooling moment, Tom, or just a way (laughs) where you should, you know, shut up and study the situation a bit better. Um, And I think that's what has come out. I've also recently, which has completely changed my worldview through sleep deprivation alone, uh, had twin girls. And, that's hmm. caused me to realize very viscerally that my methods associated with almost everything probably need to be expunged from the universe and a new generation will come through and create their own methods completely in contrast to mine. Um, mm-hmm. And I think that it's just time for me to observe really in a lot of things. I guess the change in thought was initially coming into this thing and thinking Barney like me has a number of unfinished projects. Hmm. Barney's doing it wrong. And then I realised, no, maybe I'm doing it wrong. Maybe I should study Barney <laughs> how to weather unfinished projects and have more added, and then have who knows if anything will ever get published. But the process, at least, is fun, and I guess that's where I turn to this thing.
1: Yeah, I, I mean, I, I think I would say uh, I'm possibly more organised than you might think. I, I don't think it's about organisation at all. I, I, okay, there's more procedurality <laughs> in what I do than yeah. you might think. Yeah. You know, I remember I remember a while ago where before the, the new academic year started, my entire year was was timetabled. Um I think I was probably I think that at that particular time I was working in three different institutions mm. and that was my entire year. And I and I just remember thinking, oh God, I think <laughs> I don't think I want to do this forever like that um so but but i think i think like you reported in that episode about the frustrations of the production process um i think i think sometimes deadlines can be artificially imposed yes and and counterproductive Certainly. and sometimes they can be um artificially imposed and productive they can also be um externally um um defined mm. you know and and you have to work to that end and so i think when we're talking about hobbies and when we're talking about a kind of yeah a, a friend a friendly or a camaraderie in in the production process um and we're all doing it on the side of other things i think i think it's all about taking the energy when and where it occurs um and and having having those kind of soft aims and deadlines mm. and then at certain points things need to have mm. uh you know need to have some stages of finality yeah and, and and so 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 of course we're working towards uh something with alluvial plains and just to you know reflect on your your production pre-production process i've got drawing and sculpting and i've got production process in my notes here you mm. know your really interesting project with the miniatures i think i was just thinking because you don't say have a system and law and uh, uh, an ip there's there's no need to have uh, a a, diff- a locked down figure or series of figures in mind exactly like you talk about, you know, you're working, you are precisely working the other way around, which Mm. is let's just generate some cool stuff. So it might as well start with the sculpting. Mm. And when you've got some of those and like you say, photographing them, then maybe people start to imagine what a scene would be like Mm. with a number of these characters. And that might trigger for you certain rules or law, Suggestion. So I think that sounds to me the way that you've gone into the project, and then maybe your initial hope was that it would actually work the other way around.
0: Mm. Yeah, I mean, I think you learn very quickly from these kind of things, and you particularly, if you similarly, I guess I don't do it annually, I just do it day to day, week to week, Friday by Friday, but I think I feel very similarly that my My world is predefined by external factors, and Mm. anything that can break that has got to be nurtured. (laughs) Uh, And uh, that, I guess, was the driving force. Also, you know, there's a bunch of external timeframes and other things that are going on continuously, and it's kind of that thought it would be really nice to have a Kickstarter by February, right? Mm. And Mm. obviously everyone, you know, in the process like, yeah, February, February, February. And then you kind of work it back, and you realize that we'd need to have something by October that probably won't be there. And the process around actually creating these things is interesting in and of itself. For example, in the weird World War One case, it was creating all the accoutrements—the helmets, guns, what have you—in mm-hmm. a kind of pre-made style. So the sculptor would just have to literally, you know, throw in a pistol or a backpack or whatever from a pile of mm-hmm. pre-made metal, which I thought was a really good idea until we started actually. And then we Mm -hmm. realise that, you know, this... Yeah, it's just... I guess to have a relatively unlimited budget, which is one of the things that I'm offering here, (laughs) you know, these kind of things, is actually... um, I would have thought... Well, no, look, my view is we've come to the point where sculpting is is central. And all the ideas we had prior to that are kind of swept neatly into a dustbin, which we might pull out of again. But for now, I understand why... I had that thinking and why I championed that thinking for mm-hmm. all of three weeks. Um, but I now appreciate that really you've got to let the creative define. And for folks listening in who probably have listened to the prior podcast, i.e. you, Barney, um, the the thing that drove me was actually a postcard from Kev Adams, of all things. Mm-hmm. One of my Facebook uh, forums associated with old world miniatures uh they one of the fellows, when he was ten, wrote to Games Workshop and got a postcard back from Kev Adams, where Kev himself, and Kev basically created all the Games Workshop IP associated with green skin, some of the IP associated with chaos, was evol- evolved periodically in a variety of other ranges, but really represents the the genius behind a lot of the things that make Games Workshop unique. Mm-hmm. So the fact mm-hmm. that he wasn't doing drawing, he was doing sculpting for a majority of the time. And then they'd come back, like he'd talk to people and look at pictures and do the sculpting. And, you know, I think that struck me as being okay. So this is, this is the way early games workshop produced mm-hmm. the vast ranges that they did. Because one of the things when you look through, you know, so as I have literally at Hans' length, the, the early catalogs, they were producing you know, hundreds of amazing miniatures a year, just hundreds mm-hmm. of them. And you can mm-hmm. see if you go through the process, the one of the ways they probably did it was that uh, Kev Adams sculpted ranges, 80% of which never made it to metal. You know, the, 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 the slack and the loss of creative energy was there so they could have, you know, 40 miniatures of a particular range that was so amazingly diverse because they probably made, you know, mm-hmm. 200. <laughs> but then, but
1: then, but then we have to remember as well that there are a number of, You know, there were always a number, or there were always a number of miniatures that were the same, but slightly modified.
0: Well, by the nature of the casting process at the time, which is one of the things you always need to caveat this with, there were only a certain set of orientations they could actually productively, you know, cast. And that whole thing, I very briefly, when I think I still lived in the UK, maybe, or maybe I just arrived in the US, had an email correspondence with Kev Adams about that very thing, that they really were so limited by -hmm. the casting methods at the time that they could only do a certain number of orientations. And interestingly, the standard crouching toy soldier pose where they're, you know, firing from the knee, so to speak, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. they had real problems in the casting of those miniatures, which is why so few of uh, Citadel's line had that pose, although it's a traditional toy soldier pose. So um it's really fascinating how primitive things were back then really mm-hmm. most of the evolution has come through plastics and mold making and obviously computer computer aided design in the process mm-hmm. but back mm-hmm. then it was really they could only do a certain number of poses and then they just had to stick additional stuff on it or you know make the hair bigger <laughs> and, or something
1: you know and it's it there's an interesting tension which you know, and you and and you report on this frequently. I think that some of those early miniatures are, in a way, more stunning than the ones you get certainly. now. But at the same time, you know, there's some really amazing stuff going on, isn't there? So yeah, I um, think
0: there's a, there's an interesting, you know, traditionalists that want everything back in the metal aren't following the current, you know, development. And I think um, certainly working closely with uh, my friend in Yorkshire. He frequently goes into the old Citadel, you know, forums and says quite clearly that all these old guys that say, you know, New Games Workshop's horrible and all this stuff, clearly just aren't looking. Um, and, that, sure. you know, there are actually quite interesting things that are going on there, aside from spiral miniatures that break if you sneeze. Um, mm. the, the really, you know, it's still, it's still an epicenter of creative talent that are looking to push the boundaries. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's often lost in the older miniature narrative that basically the the same people who were going through there 20 years ago and ending up, you know, leading visual production on Doctor Who, you know, the Games Workshop is an organ, Citadel and Games Workshop is an organ for young creatives in the UK to go into video games, television production. I mean, all these kind of creative outlets they all Good. seem to go through Games Workshop or Citadel at one stage. And obviously, because of their pay practices and a variety of other things, it's not particularly sustaining to work there for a long period of time. But mm-hmm. it gives people, you know, six months, two years, three years of working in an incredibly vibrant creative space and, you know, utilising ideas and, uh, you know, re- production methods, every aspect of a creative industry you know, Games Workshop, and I followed a number of these folk, um, and, you know, they all seem to end up in increasingly interesting fields, So the video games hmm. seems to be a large outlet, but the ones that get involved with the television and film aren't mm-hmm. particularly shabby either. So mm-hmm. I think that the kind of creative need for Games Workshop, for these intellectual creative folk, and also for us that, you know, yield the spoils from it, um, is incredibly powerful, and certainly my time with Livingston and Jackson was really to study what kind of people create this kind of environment for creatives to, you know, mm-hmm. explore and you know add law to and this kind of stuff. So mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I can I, wax about this for a long period of time. <laughs> I, I
1: guess. I guess just to touch on this topic of commercialization or my mm-hmm. approach to that for mm-hmm. a moment. Um, I think. I think for me, it just comes down to how i want to spend as much of my time as possible mm. or my working time mm. and i completely agree with you about the hobby aspect so the hobby hobby gaming does feel different to paid gaming mm. work um but it's good to have that distinction but but in terms of in terms of getting up and feeling inspired and motivated. Um, gaming it would be the thing game design would be the thing and connected to that is 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 an idea that at the base level i'm being paid for my time Mm. Um, and so often that might be doing you know doing something with people you know playing a game with some people Mm. or um, developing something with that kind of aim in mind it's not like it's not that that kind of It's not exactly necessarily that kind of entrepreneurial idea Mm. of I'm going to invest loads and loads of time on one or two or three things and really burn into those. And Mm. and hopefully one of those will come off and I will become, you know, super rich and live on a yacht. Uh, It's it's really about seeing it as a social as a as a as a a social job or Hmm. uh, you know i I can contribute to society in this way i think i'm pretty good at it Mm -hmm. i certainly enjoy it um and you know i'm i still at some moments i'm really disappointed that i didn't manage to do my kickstarter for league of eternal guardians Mm. yet that that's still a little bit of a frustration for me but but um it just wasn't possible yeah and 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 also then in if you like in that space the tricksters net project has Mm. popped up Mm. which 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 is co-funded in germany and uh in wales where my collaborator tom burmeister's working Mm. and we've got this great group of of young people from both countries Mm -hmm. and that's a really great project so it's not it, you know, when I think about not having done the Kickstarter, mm. I kind of think, oh, yeah, it's because something else happened. And in your case, I guess maybe one of those is that you've had your twins mm. and you've moved house. And,
0: mm-hmm.
1: you know, so, so being, yeah, that's interesting. It it's interesting, actually, different perspectives.
0: the procedural aspect of the way I run my life comes through all of that. One of the mm. things of that I find fascinating, which is really the the grail associated with what we both do is getting others to play our game from a like full we-don't-have-to-be-involved perspective. And that, I think, yeah. is what's really fascinating about... And you've interviewed, you know, more than a dozen of these folk who have had successful Kickstarters yeah. primarily because people just love playing their games and they become so intertwined, perhaps, with the environment or some simplified mechanics or some change mechanics, mm-hmm. which seem to make a lot of sense, and I think that is what fascinates me with Alluvial Plains, is the the critical mass of actually having people playing the games independently of you. Mm-hmm. And I've I've experimented with that and, tr- and try to act as an advocate wherever possible Yes, for people to play Alluvial Plains and just get a sense of what it is from not just a player's perspective, but also how... I mean, one of the things I loved with Alluvial Plains, which is probably because I broke the system in a few places in doing it, <laughs> was that... um it gave me time to really think about the environment. And I saw on your notes yeah. that, uh, you got, we were talking about in April, you talking about, uh, Vonage for World War Two, And I think that that fascinates me as a concept because I think the, there are various rules dynamics which simplify a lot of the times where you'd have pages and pages and pages of notes. And, you know, if you were running mm-hmm. uh, a D&D game, for example, you know, mm-hmm. you'd have a lot of additional stuff. I ran, Alluvial Plains, with descriptions of the basic geographies that they were going to enter into, kind of story mm-hmm. trajectory, trying to get, although the, the critical shaman wasn't able to attend, um, trying to get a sense of... And it was a very different experience than running a DD and d campaign. Mm-hmm. And I think... That's one of the things that if I was going to promote others to play or run Alluvial Plains games, mm-hmm. it changes very much the... Standard module trajectory of a game into something which is more really akin to storytelling, which I also found with your, um, when mm-hmm. you ran a game and I played, um, mm-hmm. was that it was just a completely different experience to run the game. Mm-hmm. And I don't know how you put that out there, maybe a YouTube video or something. You need, there needs to be a way to kind of convey that, which I think would sure. draw a lot of interest, uh, in actually running these games as well. Interesting. So, I mean, that's, yeah.
1: yeah, that's, that's really lovely feedback. Um, I, I, I think, I, I mean, for me, in ter- with with game design, and I'm sure it's the same for you, the, you kind of build the mechanics you want to see or mm. to experience, mm. which, which presumably you don't find readily elsewhere. Certainly. Otherwise you would simply Be play playing those that.
0: games. Yep.
1: Yep. Um, at the same time you know sometimes sometimes games seem overly complicated Certainly. you know as you've just outlined really well whether it's mechanics or whether it's world information and i just kind of can't deal with all of that yeah. at the same time i'm i i really like dice and i really like game mechanics mm. so i'm not i'm not particularly interested in creating a storytelling game yeah. where people pass uh, like uh, the conch around. Yeah. Um, but you've produced I, a
0: storytelling yeah. game that have dice as a central component Precisely. with regards Precisely. to resolution. So, yeah.
1: Uh, but what's so interesting about that is, as well, is I imagine there might be people who could run Alluvial Plains in a more, shall we say, D&D type of way. Mm. I'm sure that you could do that. But I think... Absolutely, through the rules writing, through the construction of the of the mechanics, you, you do you do give a, a sense of how best, how optimally to run it. And that's certainly the case with the, the the core rule system in League of Eternal Guardians and Tricksters Net, which is a shared a shared thing, which I'm calling counterpoint D six mm. because of how the uh abilities or skills are paired that's the Mm. counterpoint and it only uses d6 Mm. so with 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 that one especially i really i really just wanted something that would be easily playable Mm. and that anybody could pick up um so so it's so it's it's very yeah, it's it, it's a really enjoyable experience. And I have to, you know, in a way, I'm a terrible, terrible person. Because as soon as I pick up a game, start playing a game, or hear about a game, or anything, I'm just off on my own, I don't know, mod ideas,
0: mm.
1: or, or my own rule systems, mm. or something. But it's just how my brain seems to mm. work.
0: I, so you mentioned that you had six topics i think we might have covered two of them
1: oh well okay very good well no 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 we've we've covered friendship Mm -hmm. we've covered production processes Mm -hmm. we've covered drawing and sculpting and Mm -hmm. which way round to go Mm -hmm. the last one on my list is is this aversion to violence and Mm. the the pull towards fantasy Mm. um because of course in the time of our friendship, I've always had children and I think I've always voiced to you my my limited interest in historical warfare. Yes. Um, so it's been fascinating. That was another moving thing I mm. felt listening to that other episode about how maybe having children changes something. And what I I guess this is maybe a topic to talk a little bit now and to think about and talk about again is what is the pull of gaming if we are peace loving happy Mm. people and i think he says um you know i think there's i think there's some deep psychological archetypal something that pulls you into that gaming space that you work through these archetypal things and i don't know exactly what they are Mm. I don't know if they're explicitly related to violence, conflict, um, or if it's systems, procedurality. Mm -hmm. I don't know what it is, but there's some way that a game works with a, with a, like a, uh, it's, it's a bounded, open system. Mm. And, and I think there's something, there's something about that and the human mind, which is, I think what I go in for mm. and and of course, sometimes that rears its head as 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 enjoying having you know creatures, people, monsters fighting each other, mm. but I think it's I think there's something else and and it somehow does sit with the will or the desire to be peaceful mm. and um raise children
0: as a boy, I spent with my father primarily a huge amount of time in war museums and my reflection on that at the time was that once you see the machines of war and the you know mannequins appropriately sized wearing the uniforms of mm-hmm. these kind of things you develop a disgust towards war which you carry on and really it's a, it's a museum because it should not happen in the future this is a, a life lesson which and mm-hmm. then as an adult, particularly in the museums that I would walk through, one specifically, I realized that the people who were running the museum were so politically opposed. Well, even things like eliminating the Holocaust in their museums, you know, like they were really very curious people because I corresponded mm-hmm. with them specifically associated with the removal of the Holocaust from their museum. Um, I realized actually that they were nationalists and, really a, a, a group of people that I would have no affiliation with otherwise, mm-hmm. aside from, you know, my, you know, interest in history. And and I found this as well in the UK with uh, my nemesis, Henry Hyde, who started promoting all these kind of military charities with, with somewhat curious origins um, as being something that all war gamers should be behind, you know? And I mm-hmm. just thought, okay, clearly there are vast, like my life experience is not the life experience of others here. And I'm probably in a circumstance where people that I'm affiliating with because of my kind of collective vision of what this thing is about are completely different to the way that I would assume it. As an adult, and I spoke to you candidly and I mentioned in the last podcast uh, recording, I'm now (laughs) marketed a variety of things which I almost find abhorrent and in many (laughs) cases explicitly abhorrent and and do because of my interest in history and now we have these algorithms out there that exist in the wild that concatenate all our viewing history and all this kind of stuff, and then make assumptions about us as people. And mm-hmm. through this process, I've realized that I, I love the experience of reading new esoteric histories. I love the experience of, of finding things that, I, that have existed for you know 80, 90 years, but I just didn't know about it, and it's my act mm-hmm. of discovery that I'm actually very much drawn to. Mm-hmm. But I find also, and this is through COVID, a variety of other circumstances, I was a relatively isolated person historically, but now I've become extremely isolated in actual...
1: Are you and, good at it,
0: Tom? Are you good at being isolated? Then? Uh, that's an interesting question. I, I kind of desire to be more isolated than I am currently. I think it's a oh. very curious idea in any case. So being being an active participant... In these things, because I've just kind of fallen into them, um, has made me realise that a lot. I am not representative of the average role player, war gamer, etc. And the things that I like about to do uh, soft aesthetic, uh, to do with interesting ideas, you know. And in that light, um, it's very difficult for me to be prescriptive uh, about you know what. Others will get out of things. This is, in fact, the scary part with regards to, you know, producing a range of miniatures and starting to commercially write rules and these kind of things. Is that hmm. I'm not in the majority. I'm I'm interested in seeing things that interest me out there, and I don't know whether that will equate in any way to commercial success or whether it'll just be a money pit that I'm throwing money into. I think, but you see, mm-hmm.
1: I, I think I think this is an important aspect to this because hmm. uh, I suppose I've I've also feel this this social aspect of of game design and game Mm. facilitation that that i'm starting to do more of is is also that i have that opportunity to to frame gaming in the way that i do and Mm. and i probably wanted to say this earlier but i didn't that that for me improvisational approaches especially to role-playing are are really key so so that's kind of the thing that I bring if you like and and that might be a bit different to uh to to what some of my participants uh have have played before or whatever but it's to find ways to find ways to engage different people and to keep 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 space for them to be how they want to be, but also for them to open up how they how uh, new ways to Mm. to open up towards new ways and vice versa, you know, from everyone, you, you know, we, we learn, you learn so much through gaming, I think. Um, so, so I think it doesn't matter whether your things, your, your future productions are big commercial successes at all. They, they kind of exist there like, like artworks, if Mm. you like. And I think the, the hope has got to be that we find sufficient funding to make it possible that it <laughs> exists.
0: Yeah. Well, I've always thought about removing the funding component and just letting it exist separately. Um, but, yeah, creating a commercial engine would be a wonderful thing, I think.
1: Well, I tell you what, Tom, you know, if you're talking about, you know, just throwing money into all sorts of – you know, we, let's talk after the show. It's fine. We can you – know, Yeah.
0: You can, I think the, just certainly um, my interest is, is kind of studying you like a cult, <laughs> and, uh, if, if you, if you get to the goal faster than me, then I've, I've had the opportunity to study the, you like a cult. Um, it is interesting <laughs> the actual getting people to play the games. I mean, I think that's the, that's the virus aspect that enables the success of many of the people that you've spoken to yeah. is that they've been able to create something where people immediately and shared. We talked about this briefly associated with Cthulhu, but shared, um, Shared theme spaces mm-hmm. which are then with an addition of, of rules and I think the so I used to listen to a lot of gaming podcasts historically uh, I don't know I go through phases where I listen to mm-hmm. you know the latest top ten um, mm-hmm. and then feel very dirty and leave them alone uh, but I think the that's what interests me and I think socially the I don't know the bonding of the American men over gaming is very different than the bonding of the English men over gaming. And it's these cultural aspects, which I think uh, the way 40K is played in the US, we may have talked about this at one time or another. I think, it's, yeah, we may have done the, You know, that this is so culturally different than the, it's played in the UK or Australia. Mm-hmm. And yet, you know, those, those brilliant men and women at Games Workshop were able to create something that could be so differently interpreted and then so completely... Rewritten in the minds of the players that they were able to, you know, draw mm-hmm. off, you know, militarism, alpha male, you mm-hmm. know, cheerleaders and, and football players, all these beautiful cultural images in the US and make a game system that, um, you know, retiring boffinish 40 somethings in the UK, occasionally in a mm-hmm. pub, mostly in houses, usually with fish and chips as uh, terrain pieces. Um, you know, mm. they, they're so culturally different, and yet we're able to create something that was, you know, adopted and, and changed subtly, but basically was, uh, you know, adopted but, and made passionate about.
1: You know, Tom, I think it's really interesting to think, assuming that humanity lives for the next hundred <laughs> years, um, what what gaming is going to be like in a hundred years, and and mm. what what kind of reflections or what our children. Will mm. reflect on our reports of gaming at this yes. time. Um, yeah, I, that'll be that'll be a very interesting thing. I'm I'm looking at the time, mm. and it's the time for both of us to stop, isn't it? Which
0: well, I've I've got I've got two hundred two and a bit minutes.
1: Well, I I thought I'd I'd just give you that time mm. to uh, to do what you want to do with mm. the last two
0: minutes. Oh my goodness! So it's like a present. Yeah. One of the things I have been successful at doing is getting other people to create podcasts. In fact, you might be one of these people. So <laughs> it's funny to think, when I, I do reflect on that, that one of the successes I've had with regards to evangelizing and getting, and I've, I think, normally created maybe 10 podcasts by now of others that have done as you have done, uh, taken you know my formula completely disregarded and do what you want to do with with the the format but-
1: i mean i love the fact you've got no music i've said it before i love it i've got my <laughs> little flash gordon clip yes i'm happy with that but basically you know i've toyed with other things from time to time but i love the fact that you just come straight in and talk yeah. exactly i love it i love it
0: it's very so cool. good very good yeah I, i'm thinking of creating an, yet another podcast but make it more in the American format, potentially even having fake ads. But it needs to have... Int- it, look, this thing, this, the evolution of this form, I could talk mm. about for hours. Don't have time currently. But, yeah, I think the the evolution of this form into something which is really apprehensively disturbing. Uh, and there were various <laughs> periods, like when ex-radio people thought they could be podcasters and now comedians think they could be podcasters. and like No one yeah. really understands the form. They just say, oh... Let's get pre-roll ads in, and you know, let's have theme music. And all that kind of stuff. Yeah, the reaction against mm-hmm. that is actually interesting. I probably should just embrace twenty-minute podcasts, as I've been told by many of my peers, and uh, produce something different.
1: So. But I don't know. Yeah, I don't know.
0: Anyway, Barney, pleasure as yeah. always. I have—I yeah. didn't count the time because obviously I've lost time since we last spoke, but. We'll definitely need to record. I should appear on your podcast periodically.
1: Yeah, yeah, you should. <laughs> I mean, I was even thinking we could record one of our uh, alluvial plains meetings. some oh. uh, sometime oh. that might be quite good fun, mightn't it? Yeah.
0: Well, I think the the interesting thing is with the alluvial plains meetings is the more people you bring in, it's really it's the trick is finding when you could talk because <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> you've got so many kind of supercharged people ready to throw down <laughs> that you just you got to find that absolute perfect opportunity uh, I think, in order to get I a word think, in. I
1: think Spencer had. I think Spencer managed to get a couple of yeses into the last meeting.
0: Yes, I don't um, know how Spencer does it. Actually, he's a he's a polymath. He's a parent. He does he run a, a, a bed and breakfast as well. He does.
1: He, he <laughs> does. Yeah, he does. Yeah.
0: Ah, That's the dream, except my uncle and aunt decided to run a bed breakfast first and it's now just a shackle around their neck. (laughs) Yes, for another recording, Barney. A pleasure as always. Enjoy your Friday night. (laughs) And you. Take care.
1: Take care. Bye-bye.